Okay, listeners, welcome to another edition of the Jacobs Podcast. And as mentioned in the intro, uh, we're going to flip this around. So we're going to be indulgent and talk about my book, Winners Don't Cheat, Advice for Young Australians from a Young Australian. And I'm now going to present the microphone to Jordan because he will be the interviewer today and exact his revenge upon me. Well, the power is in my hands. (laughs) Oh, this feels good. in all seriousness, Sean, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Like, you know, the, the, I read your book probably two months ago. So uh, I've, had, I've had a few questions sitting on the burner that I've been wanting to, wanting to ditch at you. And um, yeah, I think as well, I've always thought this would be a great opportunity for you to, you know, get some of your ideas out there. I mean, you, you obviously had a lot of interesting guests and, you know, giving them a platform to talk. But I think that you've actually got some great ideas and uh, I want to hear your thoughts on some things and to yeah. Yeah, really elaborate on the book a bit. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jordan. And um, yeah, there were some really insightful questions. So just for listeners, we had to really distill down the list of questions that Jordan had. And then just the nature of them are really insightful because to an author, it really shows that he's read the book and enjoyed it as well, I hope. Um, And just we've had to, yeah, again, drop off quite a few questions, but we're hoping for a stimulating discussion. But yeah, thank you, Jordan. No worries, mate. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's get into it. So, I'll, yeah, I'll say from the start, I really enjoyed reading it. And I, one thing I really did like was the overlap. I mean, we did the, the podcast uh, a couple of, couple of months ago now about uh, reflecting on our 20s. Yeah. And uh, to see some of the overlap from the things I said there with your book made me, you know, I really enjoyed seeing that. A bit of confirmation bias is always good. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I've written down a few questions. So uh, let's start with the basics. Um, how did you come to write the book? And, you know, what are you trying to... What are you trying to achieve with it and what is, and you know, maybe as well for listeners, what is it ultimately about? Yeah, um, Yeah, Jordan, I had a really slow start out of high school. Um, I can remember watching as friends and others skated effortlessly ahead into all kinds of degrees, courses and even apprenticeships as well. So all seemingly knowing what they wanted to do, living with purpose and starting to earn some decent money. Um, but I took a little bit longer to develop and I should mention as well, it was also a pretty keen and avid water polo player as well. So I missed out on selection to the Australian schoolboys team and at the time it was personally crushing. So it sounds like first world problems, but I think I found myself in a place where a lot of young Aussies find themselves today. And that is that you don't quite have the skills and experience compared to where you want to go. Um, you think about, you know, I was thinking a lot about the time at the time about my rights and not so much about my responsibilities. And then also, I think I had a sense of character inside me that I knew I had, but it hadn't been tested or refined. And I think those sort of three, those are the three chief characteristics that where I found myself that I think a lot of young people find themselves in, whether it's coming out of high school, uh, whether it's they're starting or, you know, they're a student at university or you're a young professional starting out in the workplace or you're just pivoting your career in your mid-20s. So what I really wanted to do with this book is actually just literally be able to give it to myself when I was in year 11 or year 12 or transport back in time where I could put it in my hands then and just help me to make sense or distill down the lessons that I'd learnt in the 10 years that I've had since leaving school and starting a professional career. Um, I'm a big believer in the old saying, if you don't know better, you can't do better. So winners don't cheat is a lot about uh, knowing better. And that certainly um, was one of, the, one of the chief objectives of writing Winners Don't Cheat. Um, you've, you've got an interesting point there about, you know, you kind of sleepwalk through school. And I think a lot of people, you know, have that feeling. And, you know, it, it's harder as well when you look around, you see some people who kind of, you know, the guy who at five years old knew he wanted to be a lawyer and you get kind of envious thing oh people got it figured out and you're not really you're not really told by teachers and stuff that part of part of growing up is you know that uncertainty and the there's a quote from a philosopher anxiety is the dizziness of freedom and i think yeah. you know that's part of what you have to embrace like you've got all this opportunity and yeah. you know finding your own path is you know that's part of the fun of it but yeah it's quite hard when you look around and you see people who kind of seem to be flying through you know, doing good, you know, getting good grades, getting to the courses they want, but you really got to focus on your own game. And yeah, like something like this, when you're younger, is you would be would be hugely valuable because yeah, schooling, schooling and university really don't they don't give you that. Yeah, for sure, that's a good point. And I should mention as well, like having the slow start really 
allowed me to get acquainted with uh, failure early. Um, you know, I, I got into uni after 11 goes. And again, like you say, you look at people who are skating ahead really rapidly and you, you, you're dizzy, you're not really sure like how to actually make sense of it all. And then you do get that sense of like, gosh, I should be doing better without carefully or soberingly looking at what your capabilities are, how you cultivate your landscape, what your aptitude is, um, you know, is finding my passion the right thing or is building skills the right thing? It's like it provokes all of those questions and it, but chiefly it just gets you comfortable with failure. And that's the key lesson I think out of a lot of just in any endeavor at any stage of life, the sooner you get acquainted with or confront that failure, the better. And it can look very different. You know, your brand of failure can look really different to someone else. And that's why it's important to not get too carried away. And your point about learning to fail at a young age, I mean, when you think about, I'm going to be bashing on the education system a bit here, but like, you know, you go, yeah, you go through school and, you know, everything's, everything's grade based. And, you know, of course, it's important to know that you're performing well, but when everything's like, that's the only benchmark, I think that kind of sets you up to think this is the only, this is, you know, this is the, the be all and end all. If I don't get A's, then I'm some, you know, I'm, I'm a complete failure when, that's that's not the idea it's it should be okay to not do as well at something and you know you know try something new and you fail at it but you don't really the way the grade system is you don't really get that opportunity and i remember meeting a guy i was um i was working part-time at a clothing store a couple of years out of school yeah. and uh you know i i thought i did pretty well at school i had a, you know got a good enter score and yeah. that was kind of like the only you know that was how i measured success at the time yeah. and i met this guy who you know had started his own business and you know was really you know had his head you know got his head on right and yeah. was really worldly and yeah. and then he uh you know for some reason you know um, schooling came up and he told me he's like oh i got you know 50 or something for my enter and i was like i nearly fell over i was like oh yeah. my god look at what he's done with his life yeah, yeah. he realized that that's you know yeah. you know it just goes to show that these benchmarks that you know you think are appropriate yeah. may, may not be and like you said learning to fail is the most important one and you have to try and get your mindset into that into that space which yeah, yeah is hard yeah for sure and i think like with that message too about like i you know if you're not getting good grades or you're not quite connecting there um it's not a like people get the wrong message sometimes if you move away from the grading system and go look it's okay to get poor grades but it's of course you want to try and get good grades but you have to really look at you know like Bill Gates, you know, dropping out of school, starting a, a tech company in his garage. Not everyone can do that. It's a, you know, and Winners Don't Cheat really is about introducing ideas of, I open, for example, with uh, the necessity of hard work and just how important it is to work hard. So if you get poor grades, you're not sure where you want to go and you're trying to find your aptitude. The key ingredient, though, is you can't take, get yourself off the board. You've got to stay on the boil. You got to work hard, whatever it is that you want to do, and just persist and keep at it. Um, it's not just a license to score poorly and, I guess, put your feet up on the table. And because that's sort of how I would have read the message back when I was a bit younger, that it's okay to fail, but then you just sort of give up. It's like, sure, it's okay to fail, but then you've got to try something else and work bloody hard at it. Yeah, and you've also got to, you know, I think more the point about this, like you know, Bill Gates dropping out, is you know, not that you don't have to go to uni. It's that you got to think about why you're doing something. He obviously realised that the opportunity cost of him staying at uni was really high because he had he could go and start a business in in computer software. Yeah. And it's the same thing. Like if you're gonna, you know, you might say, okay, getting an A at yeah. year twelve is probably not that important because I could spend that energy doing something yeah. on the side. But if you're not doing anything, then yeah, you know, the idea of grades, of course, is to get the opportunity to get the course you want. So yeah. it's all about asking why you're doing something and sure. not doing something for the sake of it, not going yeah. along oh, for, yeah, yeah. with Definitely. the grain. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Mate, this kind of leads into my another question I had, mm -hmm. which uh, comes from the introduction in the book. And you say, I'm going to quote you, mm -hmm. quote you verbatim here. Mm -hmm. You said, at a deeper level... I also caught a bug that's essential for progress, an intolerance of my circumstances. Plodding along wasn't for me. And I, was, I found that quite really, really interesting. I thought maybe you could talk a bit about this transition. Like, was there a, was there a catalyst or, a, a, you know, a, a point that inspired you for change? Like, was it a family member that said, you know, pull your shit together? Or was there a, you know, a public hero that kind of came into your frame of reference which inspired you? How, how did this, you know, how did this intolerance come about? Yeah, look, I, in the book, I quote a guy, a uh, real estate 
uh, developer in the US, a guy called Victor McFarlane. And Donald he, Trump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are others, yes. Look, I, I um, yeah, a guy called Victor McFarlane, I don't know a whole heap about him except that he was a guy and he said something that really resonated with me when doing research for this book or just when reading um, a few years ago. And he grew up um, intensely poor. You know, he had to sleep on the floor um, of his one-bedroom house. Um, really dilapidated conditions and then he just made an agreement with himself that he wouldn't live like that and he would just be intolerant of those circumstances and strive to do better and I think in my case you know and look I should make clear I'm not an Olympic gold medalist I'm not a rags to riches come out of poverty um, story and there's no shortage of great messages from world beaters who have done all those good things but um, look in my own example is that again to type back to when we opened the start of the the starting question if you don't know better you can't do better and in my case in year 12 i was very lucky to go on a uh a school leadership conference to washington dc and there was that really just taught me a lot about international diplomacy people coming together from all parts all all kinds of government systems sharing different ideas and just the importance and value of exchanging ideas but then also how people are confronting challenges in their policy uh, in the policy space. You know, I was only in year 12, but I knew that world existed out there. So if I was going to do anything else, I knew I wasn't going to live up to those ex- what I knew better. And again, yeah, if you don't know better, you can't do better. And I think that that was just one of those experiences of many where I've read enough or I knew enough or just had enough of right insight at the time to know that I didn't have to tolerate my circumstances, that you can self- set your path to improvement and cultivate your own landscape to getting where you want to go so you're saying it was a bit of like i want to be the best version myself i know i'm i can be better than this is that how you were feeling yeah look that's right and people approach these things in different ways but i heard something the other day by matthew mcconaughey the actor and he was asked you know who do you want to be or who's your role model or who do you want to be and he thought about it and he came back and he answered the guys like i want to be my role model is myself in five years time or my role models myself in 10 years time. And I think that's this the importance of having a vision. Like you can sort of, when you start to piece things together, you know, for example, at university, I was a really lousy student when I got there. I was couldn't read properly, uh, couldn't concentrate. I was a lousy writer. Um, and then I started looking at role models and I started looking at people who were in vogue at the time. So um, again, in international affairs, so it's people like Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, you look at these people and you go, well, I can't be them, you know, tomorrow, but what were they doing when they were my age and try and adopt those characteristics? So they didn't, one of the key, the, the clear things is they never wasted their time while they were at uni. So they studied hard, they got good grades, they were good writers. And I was like, look, I can work on that right now. And so again, it's that knowing better and then demanding more of yourself. And then once you start to get those good grades, you start getting those small wins, it's easier to start being more positive about yourself and more positive about the future vision of you and where you want to go in five years' time, 10 years' time, or maybe it's a shorter time frame than that, 18 months. It's really up to the individual. You've reminded me of a, a quote that I love. Um, I think it's by Mark Twain. I'm not sure. It's, um, true nobility is being superior to your former self, not your fellow man. And I think that resonates with... Um, Jordan Peterson, one of his rules, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to someone else today. Sure. And it's, yeah. you know, that's, yeah, focusing on your own your own race, running your own your own game and playing by an inner scorecard. Yeah. It's very, you know, it's very hard to kind of block out what everyone else is doing. And it's easy to look around, go far out, look what that person's done at my age. And mm. you can kind of, it's very easy to get despondent and kind of give up. You're like, I'm too far behind. Mm. But in the end, it's, you know, you're your own person. In the end, you answer to yourself. So oh, if, you, if, you're, yeah. if you're better than you were a, a year ago or two years ago, it's, it's your own personal evolution you need to focus on. Yeah. And yeah, uh, uh, you, the yeah. message really resonates. Yeah. Um, let's, let's get into the, the rest of these. So the next one I've got here, you mentioned in the in the um, the earlier part of the book that someone read you gave you gave the essays to someone and they they described it as you being strategic, and I was I thought that was quite a harsh statement. So firstly, I want to give you the opportunity to name names. <laughs> um, but seriously, is it is that the fact that someone thought that you were being strategic in a sense is that a sign of the times that anyone who's keen to convey a message of personal responsibility or who wants to give back in this manner of writing a book, like 
does that you know that gets construed as some sort of Machiavellian intent like what does that say about society today and why aren't people more open to discussing these ideas about self-improvement or I'm keen to get your thoughts on that yeah sure no that's a good question Jordan I think the intent of my friend with that call I think he looked around um, this was a few years ago not you know 10 it was probably four five years ago but he looked around and just saw how pampered and spoiled like on the outward signs the millennial generation is or our generation or you know kids these days and he was looking at the message of the essays and going okay well you're bringing it back to being an individual to humbled message of messages of self-improvement to not focus on feel-good optimism but just that painstaking process of self-improvement and getting better day by day and being sort of better than you what you were yesterday like we just discussed um, but look I take the point though like I think self-help um, collides with a lot of um, things today and I'd recently wrote a piece in the spectator about this um, how identity politics programs for failure but the, the chief I see two things where it collides the first is privilege you know I think um, you know for example I think the chief criticism that if I get one on you know, I hope I do on the book and winners don't cheat is that how can you comment on these things because you're commenting them on a position of privilege had a very fortunate life and and look that's the case i've been very lucky in a lot of circumstances and i think anyone who lives in australia has won the lottery we do have and i know we'll get to it later in the discussion but how beneficial it is living in a place like australia where you can you can still realize your dreams and how fortunate you are but there's that sort of condescension about well look you can't talk because you don't know what it's like for a lot of people and i think the key theme of the book is, or one of the key themes is, it's about whatever your landscape is and how to improve that. And like I mentioned previously, Jordan, there's a lot of insights from people who have won gold medals, who have started billion dollar companies out of their garages. And that sort of world beating success can be distant for a lot of young people who are in the very early stages of their career or who don't have any skills and experience, like who weren't in the same place where I found myself when I was in year 12. So I think it's kind of that humbling message of, yes, improving, but from wherever you sit and wherever your station is currently. The other thing as well that I think where self-help collides is in role models. Um, doing a lot of reading on role models and, you know, you look at looking at Australian history in particular, you notice how a lot of curious characters are left aside. And in my recent Spectator piece, I talk about... Um, World War One Aboriginal servicemen. You know, these are people who face real discrimination and not imagined discrimination, but still in their own way cultivated their own path to success and fulfilment. And, you know, were things unfair? Grossly unfair. Were things unequal? Yeah, absolutely. But you still find these neat examples throughout history of people improving their circumstances, regardless from where they are. And I think that's just a really powerful message, but it's one where I think self-help collides and look the other point is we, I was in Dimmicks the other day and this is a bit flippant but um, there was just the amount of um, if you put F the F word in the title of a self-help book it makes it real <laughs> yeah. and authentic um, it's there was like un-F yourself un-Fology um, un, you know like there was at least three that I saw and two more cookbooks that were in another section. But I think there's definitely that blowback against now, the th against that feel-good optimism. And that's why I think a lot of the market and self-help is probably rushing to that. Um, you know, of the subtle art of not giving an F by, um, by uh, is it Mark Manson? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. So, but it's that thing, like, I think there's something out there about let's move away from feel-good optimism and just have that sobering self-assessment of how we get better. Even though I've noticed the sort of proliferation of self-help books in, you know, Dimmicks, et cetera, and like Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life is kind of an example of how it's, you know... Popular, yeah. yeah, but then it's funny when you talk to people our age about this stuff. Like I remember having a, a dinner conversation with a group of friends about the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Oh, and Yeah, and, and that's one of my favourite books of all time. It was kind of... And I remember, for me, it was like a revelation, but I thought maybe it was because, you know, a lot of people have turned around and said, oh, yeah, but it's such simple stuff. Like, everyone knows that. So maybe, maybe I was a bit backwards. I didn't yeah. pick it up. But yeah. it seemed, I found that people are actually quite hostile to the message of personal improvement. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure if it's because it, it almost seems like a taboo topic because, mm -hmm. you know, maybe people don't like admitting that 
you know, because it all sounds basic when you hear it, like, you know, um, looking after yourself, being proactive and all these yeah. types of habits. But, yeah. you know, maybe admitting to yourself that you're not doing them is much harder than we um, than we expect. And people don't like engaging with it because they have to admit that you're wrong in what you're doing with your life. Or, or I thought maybe it's also maybe a bit of Australian tall poppy syndrome. Like we don't like being told what to do. Yeah. I was, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I think just the admitting you're wrong is a good good one. I think one of the things I talk about in one chapter I devote to getting better at writing or improving your writing. And um, I thought I was a really awesome and decent writer um, when I wasn't. And you know, I was likening it to the fool who's driving the wrong way down the highway and everyone's racing past them and, you know, everyone else is in the wrong and I'm in the right. Now, that was probably more about that sort of ignorance and the arrogance even of just like, you know, you think about your rights and your responsibility in that same sort of theme. But it's like that was tough to get across because it was like, you know, it's some of these things are really humiliating in terms of like soberingly looking at your capabilities, realising what you need to do to get better and improve. And that was one of the key things for me. It was just, I you know, we both worked at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. And when I got there, I, again, I thought I was quite a decent but I wasn't. I wasn't a good writer at all. I just remember the red pen coming back, you know, just monstering a lot of the briefs that I put together that I worked extremely hard at. But it's just, there's, you know, before we did the podcast, we're talking about self-improvement and hard work, yes, but you've got to, it's hard work with a solid feedback loop and that's such a key thing. Um, and that's just my writing. I look at that in a way, like people say, oh, you're a good writer and this and that, but it's just, I've just been a bad writer for years and um, just that capacity to know, you know, to soberingly look at your capability, to get feedback on it and to work really hard at it and constantly, constantly keep refining and, and refreshing. It's just a great example of, and you know, you can apply that to anything. I think any, that same principle to anything that you're trying to improve on. Um, but yeah, it's just a, another humbling sort of message or theme in the book, but I think it's a really good example. It sounds like you're saying that having that honesty with yourself, uh, you know, to be frank, you know, frank uh, about your own capabilities and your yeah. skills. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's quite hard to do because yeah. your natural tendency is for your ego to kick in and you don't like, you know, admitting to yourself that you're not as good as what you thought. And yeah. there's a there's a great book I read a couple of years ago called Learn or Die. Yeah. And it, yeah. it's more focused to, have you read it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, I remember that was actually cited by, um, I think Jeff Colvin talks about it in Talent is Overrated. But yeah, look, the, just the title says a lot about it. The key, it's the key theme of it is just self-improvement, like getting better. Otherwise, you just fray on the vine or don't get better. Yeah, and I, I, I love that book. And yeah. it, the, even though it's it's written more for a business audience, but it does go into the, the dynamics of individual learning. Yeah. And it points out that the biggest barrier we have is our ego. Yeah. And, you know, being honest with yourself, putting your ego aside, being frank about your abilities yeah. is the is the true path to moving forward. Um, even uh, thinking fast and slow, mm. Daniel Kahneman talks yeah. about one of our biases is doubt avoidance tendency, and people yeah. are much more likely to get busy on the proof of their you know existing path rather than yeah. question their question their judgment when new facts come in. So yeah, sure. it's a yeah, yeah, it's not a natural thing to do, but yeah. clearly clearly important if you're gonna yeah. if you're gonna progress. Yeah. And let's progress to the next sure. <laughs> next question. Um, there was a there's a chapter in there about you're building on this uh, this topic of aptitude and strength and your skills. You've got a mm. you got a chapter in there on that, and you talk about uh, focusing on your passion and and the sacrifice involved and working hard. And it reminded me of one of my favourite Steve Jobs quotes, which is um, quote He says, "People think focus means simply saying yes to the things you've got to focus on, but that's not what it's meant to be at all. It means saying no to the other hundred good ideas that that there are." and I was wondering how you think about this question of competing priorities. Like, how do you how do you choose what's most most worthy of your attention and focus? How do you choose which aptitudes and skills to build? How do you how do you think about that? Yeah, look, one thing that jumps out when you ask that question to me is is um, an example I had from when I worked for the UN a couple of years ago in Papua New Guinea, and it's really once bitten, twice shy. And I think I've worked through that principle, and I'll explain. When I was um, yeah in Port Moresby working for the UN, I was tasked with um, out of our regional headquarters in Fiji for organising a workshop or a governance workshop for all of these stakeholders from local government, from community groups from across the Pacific. And I was given the task, but for, you know, I was still a little bit younger then and I just let it, 
I just said, oh, look, I put it off. I procrastinated, procrastinated. And then to the point where I was just like, look, I'm not, and we got weeks out from this conference and I still hadn't done any work on it. And I knew it the whole time. And then when the, my manager found out, I got in a lot of hot water for it and got in a lot of trouble. And I felt, you know, absolutely horrible about it because I was usually quite a diligent worker. Um, and then that was just something that jumped out to me as like an example when you asked the question then about, what is a what is a priority for you and like what is how do you focus and what do you need to actually distill down and focus on and i think thinking ahead to what failure looks like is really important because you go i don't want to feel that way again i don't want to be in those circumstances again so you look around the corner you look down the road and you go what do i need to do to not be in that circumstance or situation again and once you do that you can start front ending a lot of tasks you can start being more productive start saving a lot of grief and a lot of your time if you start on something now and i've carried that with me through to you know working as a senior advisor and education minister for the lord mayor of brisbane um you know when i was a political candidate when i for the national security advisor you just look down the road look around the corner and then from that you're able to work backwards on your priorities i think one of the things too from working with really good leaders is they know what the priorities are and i've been really impressed with a lot of people i've worked with a lot of like people not much older than me young men and women who have been good leaders because they've been able to prioritize and set the focus you know they can go into a situation look at something and go okay this is what the brief needs to focus on this is the task that we need to do um to actually get this across the line and a lot of that comes from just experience and just being able to focus um, and distill down so it's not something you can get straight away but you do i've certainly appreciated with 10 years of professional experience um you've reminded me of um i like your idea of kind of like a pre-mortem you you know you're trying to look down the road and see all the risks and and deal with it that way but um your your point about like the risks and um I've lost my train of thought now. <laughs> yeah, maybe I think we'll move on to the next question. Okay, well, I've got another quote from the book that I really liked. Um, and this one's on writing. And you said, improved writing has helped me to lay out thoughts, be more methodical and refine the delivery of my message. And it made me think, oh, I know you've written a lot of a lot of work in the last few years. I was wondering what you, what you thought your best piece of work is you've ever written. And... Um, and also on top of that, how do you how do you find new things to to write about? Do you kind of just you know whatever it comes to you spontaneously? Do you have a particular message you're trying to run, or is it more about trying to work through your ideas? Is it you know how do you prioritize that that process? Yeah, cool. No, another good question, Jordan. I think um, the picking my own best pieces or the best piece is hard. Like it's a tricky one, but I do look back when you ask that question about with a certain fondness upon. 2014, I think, or 2015, when I wrote for Stella magazine, which is a, um, a lifestyle magazine um, based out of PNG, or it's a South Pacific focused magazine. And in that, I was given a bit of license by the editor to just write a bit more about uh, economics, culture, um, change, development, that sort of thing. And it really gave me a chance to look at something that I really enjoyed at the time and still do is the self-help novels or the books around that got developed in the late 1800s, especially in North America. So Horatio Alger Jr., like um, this concept and idea of self-improvement, the importance of values and a free market, like all, you know, punctuality, um, reciprocity, being a, you know, a young person of your word. These are books that were lapped up in the late 1800s. And that's really when you know, the Australian economy, but also the American economy were really starting to get into high gear. On, they were basically on steroids. So you look at someone like, you know, Rockefeller, he devoured Horatio Alger Jr. when he was young. And I think that's something that I was able to apply to PNG because it's a place that has grown a lot in the last few years. It's got, it's outpaced China over the last decade in terms of pure GDP growth. A lot of change, a lot of disruption that naturally economic growth brings, but it's kind of like, how do you find values that are compatible with a free market economy? And that's a universal message. And I think it's really powerful. So I look back on those pieces that I wrote then in 2014 with a with a degree of fondness, and I think I've put them on my, my website. But 
yeah, look, I, if I had to break it down, that would be a certain period of a few pieces that I wrote that were in the self-help tradition. There were fiction pieces, but that were talking about the values that are, free, that are compatible with a free market economy. Um, but look, I, with you know writing, I think what I find is I try and if something provokes you to write, um, that's the way I look at it and you leverage off something. So we watch a lot of, you know, you and I watch um, a lot of YouTube clips, for example, interviews, and then you'll get out of that, you'll get this too. And I know a lot of people out there or listeners will get this too. It's like, that reminds me of something that I read um, a while ago, or that reminds me of something I saw another interviewer say something similar. And you start connecting the dots, which is another Steve Jobs quote, which he applies to your career. But it's really important in writing too, because I've when, one of the things I work on in my writing is I tab up everything I read, so it doesn't matter what book I read, I still get capture the learnings out of it. And I've been doing it for years, so, and it helps me try and remember stuff too. And then, so what will happen is, I'll see an interview with Niall Ferguson, for example, on YouTube, he'll mention something, and I'll go, oh, okay, that's exactly that something like Francis Fukuyama, the political scientist wrote in a book I read four years ago. And you can't quite remember what the quote is, but then you go back on my computer, I've got them all typed up, um, you know, or various articles I've read, for example, and you're able to start joining these dots and then out of that, one thing will emerge, another thing will emerge, and then naturally you've got a piece to work with and that's kind of like what how I approach things is you, you have all these different blocks and then you're just like, all right, well, does that fit? Does that fit? And then from that, you're able to know that, you know, you can actually bang a piece together that someone will read and you're going to bring something that's worthwhile or insightful. Um, and, you know, I've done that in my spare time. I'm not a full-time writer, but um, so I don't think I'd go well writing on a retainer or writing having, because I had to produce something, but because something sparked or tweaked my interest. You've reminded me, we were talking beforehand about uh, a podcast that Tyler Cohen did recently with David Brooks, and Dave, I was saying that David Brooks has this great, um, great segment in there where he talks about his writing process, and he talks about how he, his, his writing process involves him, like, laying out pieces of paper all over his entire living room and kind of moving things around. And it's a very, it's much more methodical and structured than you'd think. I think yeah. you're told when you're younger that writing, you know, let it flow, just start writing. Yeah. And he kind of debunks that whole thing. It's a much more structured, rigid process to, to get a coherent narrative. Yeah. And you've got to be much more conscious of it. Yeah, sure. And I was, yeah. Would, yeah. Um, one more thing on top of that. Yeah. I was, you, I was wondering, do you, when you're writing, do you have a particular audience in mind? Like, are you writing for some like do you have a person in mind that you think oh yeah like you know my sister or a friend or you know do you have how do you how do you tailor your messaging based on your writing yeah look that's you anticipated my point i was just gonna <laughs> jump in and say that so um the i probably just think about myself um and how what i'd like to read um you know one of the i write about this in winners don't cheat about you've got to find your authentic voice and it's a point from Christopher Hitchens and that will develop over time. You don't really, I never knew it when I was in year 12, but I knew what I'd sort of liked to have read back then. And so I try and write to myself as a sort of younger version to a degree, but giving myself a bit of credit, like not using fancy words or, um, you know, not jargon, but extended prose, like say Patrick Lee Fermor was a poet, like who I love to read. You know, I love his stuff, but I could never duplicate it because it's not my voice. And so I try to write with a like a strong degree of simplicity, something that's coherent, but that I could pick up and read and just be able to. And so it's probably a bit self-indulgent, but I know because I'm the most distract, one of the most distracted persons that I know. Um, you know, when I go to a presentation, I pitch to myself because I'm the most bored guy in the room. <laughs> I'm the guy who's wandering off. So therefore, I can write to. You know, if you can write to the lowest common denominator or present to lowest, in a good way, I mean, um, that is a, you know, you can lift everything else up because you've captured everyone else's attention. So that's probably one of the way I approach. That's one of the ways I approach uh, writing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I found, I, like you say, find your authentic, you're in a voice. Yeah. It's actually much harder than you'd expect. Oh, like, yeah. I think looking yeah. back at some of my writing, yeah. I've changed, you know, month to month in the way yeah. and partly it's because of the response you get like if i ask a friend to read something and they don't read it you're like okay i probably haven't got that one down yeah, pat yeah, yeah. but i uh, the other trick is like you know how to how much jargon to use and how complicated to get and i yeah. found you really have to 
um, you've got to think of like, okay, I'm writing to a smart person who's unfamiliar with the topic and that really helps kind of... Yeah, yeah, for sure. And look, I just remember your um, newsletter for Wig Capital is like that a good example of that. It's like working out, you know, can you just talk a bit about that for a second? Because I think it's a really worthy lesson. Yeah, well, that, and that's taken me years to get to that spot. Like that's the first time I had a couple of people write back say this is actually quite witty and, you know, I was engaged yeah. the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's really challenging to get to that that state it's funny how when you like initially you, you're writing a much more academic yeah. and dry tone it's kind of like you'd think as a younger person you'd be more free with your yeah. your language and i think it partly comes from the older you get the more the, the greater grasp you have with the topic so this this latest newsletter you're talking about like i kind of had in my head i've been thinking about it for nearly six months and by the time i went to write it i pretty much already knew what i wanted to write yeah. and that that gives you a lot more flow and yeah. you know you've got the structure in your mind and yeah. you can kind of you can be a bit more witty because you know the point you're trying to make if you start out to write something you're like okay i'm going to write about this topic and you start writing before you got a good grasp of it and you're just going to try and figure it out on the way yeah. disaster waiting to happen well that's yeah. that's what i've found oh for sure and i think you see that for example in i try to write in like for example the piece i did recently for the spectator is just i couldn't have written like that um a few years ago even like or two three years ago because i wasn't kind of there with my writing yet and you read some of the best like satirists or the people who you know who who know the topics back to front is because they've been exposed to them and they're able to write in that manner or be a bit more flippant a bit more loose is because they've been around it for two decades or three decades in some cases and um yeah it's you know, one of those things where, yeah, you, you spot on the experience and the exposure to an issue allows you to write more freely about it. And I think as well, having the training that we've had, especially like as a Mandarin, you know, like at Prime Minister and Cabinet, that reins you back in with your writing and makes you more deliberate with your words. And that was a really good training ground for me in Canberra about not wasting words or space or really being diligent about getting your point across in a succinct way. Um, so yeah, that's just something to consider too. Yeah. Um, over the last few years as well, I've found a few authors that I've mm. gravitated towards because of their engaging style. And it's kind of like, yeah. oh, I'd love to be able to write like that. Or yeah. like one example is Jim Grant, who's a financial uh, writer. Yeah. And he's written a few books and he's got yeah. this fortnightly publication, which is kind of like the gold standard in yeah. financial yeah. Uh, journalism. Yeah. And he, he manages to turn like analysis of a company's profit and loss statement into something that's funny and engaging. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, if you can take a topic like that and, yeah. you know, really make it uh, appealing, even Nassim Taleb, like he, I think he jokes in one of his books that yeah. the editor, you know, he, he doesn't have an editor and there's points where you're reading, you're like, I think he's half cut when yeah. he's writing this. <laughs> and I was wondering, yeah, <laughs> And I was wondering, do you have a couple of authors or people that you've, you know, you admire the way they write? Like, have you tried to pick up on pieces yeah, of theirs? Yeah. Look, thanks, man. It's a great question. I think um, with a guy, Thomas Sowell, who I cite a couple of times in the book, who's an American economist. He's approaching his 90s now, but he's a guy that um, has written so many books, but he's been able to distill really tricky principles or a lot of very tricky economic ideas into a consumable version for, you know, like just the everyday person. And I think he's a key guy because he's his life experience. You know, he grew up in Harlem. He's had a really he's had a really tricky and difficult life where he's been exposed to people who aren't uh, world class macroeconomists early in his life and he hasn't been coddled in terms of being inside a bubble or writing for academia or writing for a certain set segment of people. I think that exposure to um, different, you know, like people who aren't into economics has just been a really good thing for him because he's probably writing, and I don't really know if he, I've read a lot of his stuff, but I can't really work. But, I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if he said that he was writing for himself too or the people he knew back in, you know, like, say, Harlem. And it's like, it's and it gives people, a, it's not dumbing it down. It's a very delicate thing about giving the writer, sorry, giving the reader a huge element of respect, but writing clearly and succinctly. Um, but conveying ideas. So I look, I look to a guy like Thomas Sowell, um, Christopher Hitchens. I enjoyed a lot too. But again, he has a bit of a swashbuckling style, like <laughs> Patrick Lee Fermor. That it's not my thing, but I enjoy reading his stuff. Um, but yeah, that simplicity of someone like Thomas Sowell is someone who really jumps out to me. How about yourself? Um, yeah, well, Nassim Taleb's one. Uh, Jim Grant's another. Um, I'm trying to think of a. I, to be honest, I read a lot of dry stuff, and so yeah. I read a lot of examples of probably not the best writing. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I can't think of nothing's coming out off the top of my head. Well, I'll have Charles a, Murray. I mean, he's yeah, he's good. Um, Noel Ferguson's pretty good actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even but he's written some books which are quite um, quite uh, you know more historical yeah. and dry stuff. Yeah. Peter Thiel's book Zero to One actually is one of the yeah, um, yeah. like in terms of concise I think a lot of authors uh, go overboard they're yeah. trying to put too much information there his is a great example of like brevity is the yeah. is is the um, the gold standard yeah. and I think Jim Grant that's one thing he does he can he can analyze an entire um, company a 50 billion dollar company yeah. in the space of two pages yeah. and make it engaging and it's because you can cut to the core sure. and I think um, actually Deirdre McCloskey is another one I really yeah. enjoyed her stuff yeah. and she talks about um, how it's you know shedding the stuff like you might write a lot but then really cutting away to the core yeah, yeah. and you i think you'd be surprised when you're writing about how much superfluous words you put in there if you can really distill it down to the most simple concise easy yeah. to understand statement you can have a much more engaging uh yeah. engaging piece and narrative yeah for sure and just to chime in there quickly the that's where i think working in government in my case or in politics and policy and writing briefs has been key because that's the thing like if you've only got a certain amount of words to play with um, you get rid of that superfluous stuff and you really you're able to distill down and cut down a lot of unnecessary stuff and that's probably a key thing to sort of work it back in the book is like what I see in a lot of young people and a lot of students that I mentor even at uni now is just the writing there's a lot of verbosity there where it's like a lot of words being used a lot of and then that was the key thing that had to be sort of beaten out of me whenever I, when I got into government is just like, don't do that. You know, there's a lot, you can convey the same message in a much shorter space of time, use of words than, um, yeah. So like, I think that's, a re- that's been a really good training ground in my case is working in government. Um, you've just reminded me as well, what another, another great author, um, which people wouldn't expect is Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. I mean, reading his annual letters. Oh, yeah, yeah. There, I mean, kind of example you talk about like public policy speak, which yeah. is you know bureaucratic and yeah. technical and full of jargon and yeah. long sentences. Yeah. You see a lot of that in um, corporate annual reports and stuff like that. Yeah. You you know put you to sleep in sure. a few minutes. Whilst yeah. Buffett's done a, a great job of yeah. um, you know distilling it down to the core, simple. Yeah. And his letters are really they're, they're fun, engaging, they're folksy. Yeah. And he even says he writes um, for his sister, yeah, and I think yeah. that That's you right. know yeah, keeps yeah. it keeps yeah. it simple. Yeah. Um, one last thing, one last point, one thing that I got out of the last newsletter I did yeah. was that it's actually quite fun yeah. when you, you know, I think when you find your voice, yeah. it's actually quite fun to write and yeah. you're like, you know, if it's fun to write, it should be fun to read. Sure. And I think that that's a good test and that might be why, I, mean, I, think, I think a few people would be like, why should, you know, why should I bother writing? Yeah. And I've been like that for years and yeah. then like, I've always seen reading is very important, yeah. but then writing, I kind of thought, oh, you know, that's only something authors do. Yeah. I've really changed my tune on that the last couple of years, and yeah. for the for the reason that you can see that it not only helps you distill your thoughts, but yeah. once you you've got that record, I think sometimes you think you can, yeah. you know, you always have that knowledge in the back of your mind, but yeah. you really got to put some things down on paper. And I've gone yeah. back to stuff I wrote wrote a couple of years ago and thought, oh, I'm so glad I've got this here, and yeah. always yeah. can come back to it. And it's also yeah, it's fun actually distilling your thoughts. Yeah, definitely. And like one of the I just moved house recently and moved in with my girlfriend but so i had a bucket load of books that i've had to part ways with but i've also found a lot of papers that i've read you know five six years ago that i'd forgot that i'd read and then you know highlighted different passages scribbled in the margins and you know rather than toss them out um i've made a concerted effort to like read you know get the notes out of them before i throw them away and like and it's interesting to see the notes that you write at the time because they're very different to like, I was like, oh, you know, oh, scribbles- yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what a fool kind of thing. And um, yeah, so talk about a better version of yourself than yeah. six yesterday, let alone six years ago. But yeah, it's that I like, I, one of the key things too is just, I've got, um, I take uh, keywords and phrases that I really enjoy out of books too, not just the content of the ideas or the, the caliber of the ideas, but the caliber of the written words too. And it's like, oh, that's a really awesome passage. And so I take that out of a book or something I've read and it can come from fiction, can, you know, a lot of fiction, but just a lot of good writers. And it really helps you like build your vocab, of course, but really just helps with um, being able to, when you, you know, form good sentences, try pull out language, you know, warm yourself up when you need to actually write something. Uh, one last point before I move on to the last question. I was just thinking about um, another author. One of my favorites is Michael Lewis. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Moneyball and- yeah, and The Big Short. And yeah. like, 
if anyone's read The Big Short, they'll know that he goes into great detail about you know how credit default swaps and collateralized debt obligations, all these complex financial instruments that you know nearly brought down the banks and the GFC. Yeah. And I remember him saying that he, after he wrote the book, he was getting calls from senators. Uh, saying, you know, we need you to come in and explain this stuff. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm just, yeah. you know, I'm just a, like a journalist. What are yeah, you, yeah, you know, yeah. there's experts out there who can do that. But yeah. it just goes to show the power of simple narrative. If you can oh. really distill, and I think he does that amazingly well. He not only yeah. finds characters in these yeah. mundane stories, but he can yeah. he can make a complex uh, uh, subject matter yeah. really, really simple and easy. And yeah. I mean, he sold millions of books. It just goes to show yeah. the power of it. Yeah, for sure. Just quickly, Jordan, can I just jump in on that one? And that's that's just to um, really relay the 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 benefit of stories. You know, yeah. we talk a bit about Jordan Peterson, and he talks a lot about the Bible and that sort of thing, and how he, you know, like the power of narrative and the power of story is just so appealing. And you look at places, for example, like um, you know, it, all over the world, where you know a lot of people can't read still or haven't you know the last sort of 50, you know live in abject poverty but what it can appeal to anyone that's universal is stories and you know just how emotive that can be and how engaging a story can be and um you know that's one of the things i've i've learned you know just from reading different parts of history is like you can get you know for example i talk about this in the book about margaret thatcher the former prime minister of the united kingdom building up coal reserves um you know, from because of the coal strikes in 1984, but when she came to power in 79, she built up the coal reserves because she knew she was going to encounter strikes. And like, there's just such like that's just a very simple thing I've pulled out of reading about Margaret Thatcher. But it's like you can apply that lesson in any way. You know, like Muhammad Ali's famous quote: "The fight isn't won and lost in the gym in the, in the ring, but in the gym hours and hours beforehand." John Howard: "You can't fatten a pig on market day about polling and elections." And, you know, um, that's that principle about it's just you can apply that. It's a great story, Thatcher's story about building reserves up front so that you can weather storms in the future. Um, but, yes, yeah, so that's a really good story. But, you know, I only got it by reading. And just, you know, there's so many of those out there that you can relay a complex idea into something that's really relatable. And I think, you know, you talk about the power of narrative and Jordan Peterson, you mentioned as well. One thing I listened to recently was the um, the podcast between him and Sam Harris. And Sam Harris is known as one of the um, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, him and Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett. And yeah. I can't remember who the, the oh, other... Dawkins. Dawkins, yeah. yeah. And these guys, you know, the, the anti-religious uh, faction who've yeah. done a, a, you know... A, huge job on yeah. on every global religion yeah. and you know they, they you know peterson and sam harris have this podcast and you know sam harris is kind of saying you know that the supernatural stuff has you know done such harm to humanity and jordan peterson was trying to make a point he's like yeah i i understand that but it's like you're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater if you're yeah. saying religion just needs to go out the window we're going a bit off piste here yeah, so i hope you don't sure, mind yeah. <laughs> but i thought the the interesting point about peterson's work is that he seems to be engaging with this question of why is religion, why is religious scripture so so powerful on the human psyche? What yeah. meaning does it give us? Why do, why do these stories have such a, a powerful impact on the way we behave? And I think engaging, reconciling with that, that question of, you know, why do we get meaning from stories and why was the Bible so powerful in yeah. human decision-making? Yeah. I think those are really interesting interesting yeah. questions. No, definitely. You've just done a, um, you've been much more articulate with Kemba in that Peterson appeal and that message. So, yeah, absolutely agree. Spot on. Let's get back to your book. <laughs> uh, my last question. Um, you, finish, you finish the book with what I would say is an unbridled defense of Australian exceptionalism. And I don't, you know, no one, everyone hears about American exceptionalism, but I think you do a pretty good job in that last chapter of, of outlining an Australian, an Australian exceptionalism. Mm. And you, you cite our unique history of egalitarianism, entrepreneurship, community and a, like a very strong connection with the British tradition of representative government and the rule of law. And I was wondering, you know, given given this view you have of the Australian um, political experiment, like mm. I was wondering to get your thoughts on what you, you, you think about the recent debate about changing the Australian Day flag. Like how does that sit with our uh, this tradition? Mm. And um, maybe on... Oh, actually, I'll come back to the follow-up question after you answer that one. Yeah, sure. Look, I think... The, one of the aims, especially with that last chapter, or the aim is to just try and build a cultural confidence in our history. And I think when you read people like Winston Churchill, 
Um, even through to someone like Karl Marx, who you know is probably not as enthusiastic about it, but he at least acknowledges the importance of history. And I think you know, Colt and John Howard talks about this, and I think any political leader that you'll speak to on any side of the political spectrum will talk about how important it is to actually learn from the past, yes, but then actually how much cultural confidence it can give you. And I think that. One of the core insights, if you look at Australian history, is just how delicate and how much of an, ex you know, how beneficial and how timely it was that Australia was settled at the time it was. You know, in, when the Enlightenment idea was getting into high gear, all of the major inventions were starting up. Um, it really was a very careful um, experiment. And then it's actually turned out hugely successfully. And everyone, I think, can get some tradition out of it. It doesn't, you know, there's no there's no talking about race or there's no it's colorblind to me australian history or you know when you talk about inequality and things like that it's like we we're a mobile society we're an industrious people we're an enterprising people and it doesn't belong to any racial segment or any particular particular cultural group it's something that all australians can find a tradition in and i think that british westminster system has really been hugely successful in unlocking those talents of people and the individual talents of of individuals by themselves but I think that you know that message is certainly getting a little bit drowned out today um, you know when you talk, we talk about the flag for example or this idea that we need to become a a uh, republic because of our, our lagging identity in Asia we need to become you know it's our identity that we need to evolve and change and I look back at Australian history and I apply this to the flag too we've been incredible success incredibly successful nation without uh, being a republic or without you know having to change the flag and so why do we need to actually um, change those things when they've been the you know part of the symbols that have been the core turbine of Australian progress there's no need to actually uh, change those things um, you've reminded me um, about some of the debate although or some of the media commentary recently about in the US I think there were some statues in the south that were pulled down which caused yeah. a lot of commotion and I think you know putting aside whether or not you agree mm. with the, you know, the, what that statue represented mm. and you think about, you know, what, what benefit does it serve actually pulling these things down? Mm. I mean, I, I'm, I traveled to Bulgaria a few years ago and, you know, that's where my family are from. And I was, you know, I, I kept seeing all these, uh, you know, Soviet era statues and they're, you know, quite oppressive just in the look of them. And you're like, you know, this isn't from, you know, Bulgaria's peak period or anything, but like they're still there. And you might say, oh, you know, cause that, that period's done with, Bulgaria's moved on, you should pull those, down those statues. But I think it's a very important reminder of your history and this doesn't really serve any purpose trying to, you know, regardless of how you feel about it, if you don't like the Australian flag, getting, you know, changing, I feel like is a bit kind of, yeah. you're not really reconciling with your history. Yeah. You don't want to just sweep it under the rug. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, look, that's right. And I think as well is how easy it is to go after symbols. And that seems to be all a lot of disruptive young people do now not you know the majority by any stretch i think the majority of young australians actually find sense in our traditions and are pretty proud of them but the more vocal end of town that you hear about or see on social media or that makes headlines um tends to go for that symbolism because it's easy and you know it's very it's a very lazy way to just tear down um you know or do a freedia statue or you know um throw toilet whatever deface something or actually argue for change when you haven't had the sobering assessment of what it is that makes our country great or the delicacy of the history of your country. And I think it's just a really important point that, you know, and that's the reason why I finished the book on that note. Um, you, you mentioned that Australians are pretty proud of their traditions and like, you know, we're all well aware of stuff like, you know, the local pub and the chicken palmer and, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> Um, but I was wondering if you could tell me, you know, outline a couple other more deeper traditions that you think people might not be so aware of, like, you know, traveling to the US and the UK in the last few years, I noticed, mm. you know, you can obviously see the, the heritage, the, mm. the association, you know, like, they're almost like cousins. Yeah. But like, there was a couple of cultural things that really stood out to me, like in, in the UK, yeah. there's a much more... Uh, class mentality yeah. which you know the way people treated like a waiter or something was much different to the way we would if you're in a cafe or something in Australia yeah. and then yeah. the US seems to have a much more consumption driven yeah. culture I was wondering are there any other things about Australia that you think are quite exceptional or unique in our traditions yeah sure look I think one of the things you notice from reading Australian history is the egalitarianism we have here 
Um, you know, that's because when, you know, uh, Philip came to shore in 1788 to settle with the first fleet, it was literally everyone in together. And then as, you know, settlers, squatters, selectors, and, you know, agriculture started expanding across the continent, it was, there was no time for landed gentry or for someone to like whip others and, um, you know, tell the workers to do it. Or, you know, a lot of convicts and settlers would be working side by side. And, you know, like a lot of convicts would become, you know, get their ticket of leave and become settlers themselves. So we just didn't have, it was the, the cultural, the, sorry, the, the actual geographical terrain, the lack of commerce and industry, you know, where we had to literally start from scratch required that everyone had to be in it together. And so that's why we don't have, and you know, you fast forward to the mid 1800s from the late 1700s and um, Daniel Dennehy, who talked about the Bunyip aristocracy, you know, we had a big debate about titles and, um, you know, having a privilege, like a, a landed gentry in terms of um, reserve spots for people of privilege or property owners. And it was like, no, that's completely an affront to how the cultural characteristics of Australia have developed organically over time. Um, so we've got much more of a sense of egalitarian. I think pragmatism here as well. We're rugged, ruggedly utilitarian here in terms of how we approach things. You know, if the fence is broken, get out there and fix it. Like, don't have a team of lawyers or specialists examine why the fence is... It's like, and this is one of the things that Nick Cater talks about in his book, The Lucky Culture. It's like, you see that time and again throughout Australian history is just, we have a problem, fix it, get out there, get it done. And that borrows directly from our history and I think culturally where we are as a people that makes us distinct from, uh, there's lots more, but the, those I think are the two things is egalitarianism and pragmatism vis-a-vis um, -vis United States and United Kingdom. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, you've also, listening to your talk makes me feel really ashamed of how little I know of Australian history. And how, like I, you know, the, I think if you ask people who the first American president was versus the first Australian president, yeah. they'd be able to list off the American, you know, George Washington, bang. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, on this on this point, like, do you have any books you can recommend for people? You know, I, I would love to read more about Australian history. And, yeah. you know, but there's, it can be rather dry. I think everyone did a bit of it at school and you're yeah. like, that was the, you know, yeah. quickest way to fall asleep. Yeah. yeah have you got any, anything that people can... Uh, can find that would be more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mentioned it just before, Nick Cater, uh, The Lucky Culture. That's a great book. And I think it just really teases out that pragmatism and that um, egalitarianism that's part of the cultural landscape in Australia that everyone can find a tradition in. It doesn't belong to a certain um, race or doesn't depend on complexion, but it belongs to everyone. Um, one that you'll enjoy, and I might have recommended this to you before, and I think listeners would enjoy it too, is Thomas Barlow, uh, The Australian Miracle, because in that he talks a lot about how innovative Australians have been and enterprising, but it's not glamorous or not sexy. So, for example, you know, it's not widgets and people running startups or anything like that. What we see as innovation today, it's, it's innovation in terms of a response to the problems that have enc we've encountered here from building a nation starting from scratch. So, and the harsh Australian climate. That's right. So it's um, things like the stump jump plough, combine harvester, rust-resistant wheat. You know, the list goes on. Um, the Ridley stripper. Like, these things were globally innovative, but they're not glamorous, but where they've been a response to, um, yeah, like you say, the harsh... Uh, terrain, but then there've been a necessity, which is one of the key ingredients of innovation that aren't glamorous, but they do. There's a lot in this book about Australian history that's really important, and I think gives you gives anyone a degree of pride and cultural confidence in their history. And I think you, that point, that last point about cultural pride and confidence, mm -hmm. it's I always I didn't realise this until I went to the US and the UK, but I'd always seen Australia as kind of being like a, a you know a second rung player. Mm -hmm. I should probably say that on recording. <laughs> but like, I get, I, yeah. you get a sense that, you know, a lot of the big innovations like the tech companies yeah, and yeah, all yeah. these things happen overseas yeah. and yeah, yeah. you're like, maybe, you know, we're not as, yeah. we're not as um, yeah. innovative and capable, yeah. but actually going there and seeing, yeah. you know, the US has, you know, huge yeah. problems yeah. Uh, culturally and yeah. economically and, yeah. you know, Australia has got a pretty great situation and, you know, yeah. that they have problems like we do. And mm. so I don't think Australians should ever sell themselves short of what they're capable of. Like the next yeah. great tech company can be started here. Yeah. The next great political leader could be here. Yeah. I mean, we've got amazing resources in a country. Yeah, I think that cultural pride, yeah. it really is a, is a great one. Yeah, sure. And look, I think it's a really good message to finish on. And that's what 
winners don't cheat is about it as well as just trying to give young people the skills and the aptitude and introduce the new ideas that, that where they can find um, you know a strong degree of, of tradition in and um, yeah look and I, I fully agree and that's a, a spot-on point um, and just to tie back in with your book like you know you talking about confidence in our culture and in yeah. our country yeah. and your book's really about confidence in yourself and backing yourself taking responsibility and thinking you can be the best version of yourself which i think is a great yeah. refreshing yeah. or old school message sure. but one that you don't hear enough these days so yeah. um I'm, that's all my questions mate i've really enjoyed this i really enjoyed your book yeah. uh yeah no it was great asking you about your thoughts and getting more detail out of you so appreciate the opportunity to interview you Awesome. Well, thanks very much, Sean. I've enjoyed this too. And like I said at the beginning, um, you've done a tremendous job in terms of distilling down some of the key messages in there. And I hope a lot of young Australians or a lot of readers out there will find uh, resonance with it in a way that you have too. And thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Pleasure, mate. Cheers. Thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in. Winners Don't Cheat is available at conacourtpublishing.com.au. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and until next time.